welcome back to Making It. My name is Mirabelle. On the podcast, I have spoken to a lot of musicians, some filmmakers, and on occasion, there are people who do both of these things. Today, I'm talking to Daniel Broadley, who is a filmmaker, a director, a DP, photographer, and also a musician. He's one half of the band Meadowlark, and if you followed along with this podcast, you might recall that last week we had Kate McGill, who is, well, the other half. So we get the whole band on the podcast. Very exciting. For the filmmaking side of Daniel, he does a lot of music video work, and so he talks about working with small indie bands all the way up to international pop stars like Nick Jonas, which is really interesting if you've ever wondered kind of all the different hats that you have to wear for that. On the music side of things, it was really insightful to hear more about Meadowlark and how they kind of went from playing huge national shows and being on the radio all the time to rediscovering and returning to their roots where they're writing music in a way that feels good for them and they're not just trying to cater to the masses and write a pop hit every single time. And it really goes to show that you don't have to be a touring musician who only plays live shows for a billion people to make it. Like You can do it in ways that feel comfortable and feel good for you. All right, to wrap up this intro before I end up just like regurgitating everything that we've talked about, if you like it, please rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening. If you're watching on YouTube, leave a comment, leave a like. I would love to say hello back to you. And if you want to get involved with the podcast and ask your questions, you can sign up for Patreon. Links to that, links to myself, Daniel, all in the description. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Making It. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, I spoke to Kate Kate McGill recently-ish, a couple weeks ago, who is the other half of Metal Arc, the band that you're in. So it's cool. It's nice to have both of you on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting to hear her, some of her answers to some of the questions because we are we have quite uh, we sometimes overlap on things and other times we we really clash on ideas. But I, I think that's kind of what makes the band works so well. Um, oh yeah. You saying that yeah. immediately, I immediately thought of Nightstorm, that mm-hmm. that song that you guys did together. Yeah. Yeah, we we wrote with a guy called Erland Cooper who's this amazing composer, songwriter. Um and his exercise for us was just to go into different rooms and um and just write melodies and lyrics and then come back in and sing them at exactly the same time. So we just heard each other sing it for the first time together. And um, it was, yeah, it was a really good exercise. I, not something you could do all the time, but we hit kind of a part where we, I think the the piece uh, Kate had written was like a minute and a half, two minutes. So it wasn't really like a traditional song. Um, and it was kind of a nice way to just make something of it. Because at that point we were writing, we were trying to write singles. And I'm sure as a songwriter, you know, you kind of get this formula in your head and then you repeat the formula and it gets really, you get kind of tired of the same thing, even though you know it's, the traditional structure of songwriting it's verse chorus etc and you can change you can add pre-choruses and whatever but there's always that for it to be a pop song essentially it kind of follows that the um that formula but it's uh this was fun to just go well it's not going to be a single it's not going to be a radio song so let's just uh mm. have fun with it yeah that's super cool so like a lot of the people i have on i know them through twitch like i've connected with them through twitch streaming but you're not on twitch 
<laughs> I'm not on Twitch. No, I'm actually not very. Uh, I'm not super great in front of the camera. Um, <laughs> maybe because I'm. I spend so much time behind it. So I'm. Uh, this is like a rare thing for me. But I. I, I get used to it from being in Metalark and. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not something I. I love doing. And yeah, Twitch is a. I have high praise for people that can that can keep up with Twitch because it's a lot of work. Mm. And I have friends on it. Kate was on it for a while, and um, and some other friends that, that do it regularly. And it yeah, it takes a lot of work and um, to keep it interesting and fresh as well. So yeah, kudos to you. So the question is, when are you gonna join Kate on one of her streams? <laughs> That's a good question. But John, we almost did it a while ago actually, and I can't really? remember why. Yeah, it didn't happen. I I think I think it was maybe like the fourth birthday of our album or something <laughs> and she was gonna we were gonna go on together and do something I, I think i ended up getting a job which happens a lot um mm. and uh and she said i kind of dodged a bullet apparently because it was uh, just a particularly quiet day she, she streamed so Aww. um but it was yeah we, i probably will one day i feel like especially now we're um we're kind of doing some bits and bobs together again mm-hmm. i feel like and we're really enjoying playing together i think um i think we got into a weird state with the last album we put out with Nightstorm, where a lot of the songs were kind of production songs like production heavy songs mm. even though they didn't sound it they weren't songs we kind of like sat in a room together with two guitars and wrote they were like you know an idea where i started with a drum beat or kate started with a melody and we kind of built the songs up that way and i feel like that's that's cool but um you sort of lose the love of just playing them together with just the, mm. the raw instruments and i feel like with this with what we're doing at the moment and maybe what's to come, you know, we're just kind of getting used to being each other's company again now. And I think, um, I feel like that stuff we're, we're writing just in a room together with no computers. Like we're not really opening logic or Ableton or anything. We're just, we're just writing it with what's in front of us. And I think that's, uh, probably been the best thing for us, to be honest. That's um, awesome. That's yeah, really, it's really cool. exciting. When How about you're... you? Don't, can I, can I ask oh, yeah. you with, with writing, do you, do you like gravitate towards using the computer or do you prefer to kind of like start on something that's just you know an acoustic instrument essentially yeah i prefer to pretty much just start with my acoustic guitar pick it up play a couple chords find a nice riff or something and then just kind of be mumbling random Mm -hmm. words that don't actually make any sense and then yeah you know usually a melody will come through or something and then i build upon that it starts to form starts to make sense at some point (laughs) yeah yeah it's interesting that's similar to us we're not really lyrics come second for us it's always melody and chords first mm-hmm. and, then, and then we kind of like slot the lyrics in depending on how we feel like we, we kind of get used to enunciating the melody a certain way and then we try and fit the words in which can be a real pain um, yeah. because you get so attached to these i call them uh, yogurt lyrics where they're just they're, they're sort of they don't make any sense they're just completely garbage but um you know it's you, you um yeah it's just interesting that we we construct songs the same way yeah when you guys are writing together though like does anybody take over more of the instrumental part or the lyrics or anything like that yeah i think because it's kate's voice i think kate kind of takes the lead and i you know it's for me it's i really i've always been a, a kate fan like before we started a band together i was a fan of her solo stuff so i still kind of get the enamored with her when she brings something <laughs> to the table and i sort of sit in the room for the first time and hear her sing something she's got um and sometimes like nothing needs to happen it's just it's amazing as it is and maybe i fill in some gaps and other times i can i can just hear where it could go like i feel like it's it's most the way there but maybe the verse should change or there should be a different chord Mm -hmm. somewhere or 
So I'm very much like, uh, especially the more the newer stuff we're doing at the moment, what we're trying to write together. It's um, it feels like that's a lot more of her leading the way, and I think it's because she's found her voice again, and she lost that for a while in amongst mm. going through a whole bunch of stuff in her personal life, and um, so I feel like now she's got this confidence back in herself and her songwriting. So it's been kind of an amazing for me to just to come in and facilitate that. And in some instances, that's all I'm doing. I'm just encouraging her to, to, to kind of move forward with that song. And, but it's weird how, because she started releasing solo material now, right. um, again, but it's so funny that when she writes a song, sometimes it just is a metal arc song. It, I don't know. We don't know why exactly, but <laughs> she'll send me an idea and, and we'll both be like, this feels like a, a metal arc song. And yet other times she'll write something and it will feel like, um, you know, something that just could be her solo mm. uh, material. So That's it's, um, yeah. And I, we haven't fig- figured out what that is yet. There's just a, a feeling. Uh, I, I guess it's an excitement we both get when we hear something. Mm. Um, Do we get to hear more of your singing on what you're uh, working yeah. now? <laughs> yeah, quite a lot more, actually. Oh, yes. Love it. <laughs> um, yeah. I think um, it's interesting because, like, no one really knows it, but when we, when we first started Metal Arc back in, like, 2012, maybe, um, I think it was 2012 uh, i i was the lead singer in my my band at the time and um when we started metal like we kind of both were doing joint vocal duties mm. and uh it's really interesting how yeah like i guess it didn't make sense at the time we weren't we weren't working together at all i had a very loud very out of tune voice <laughs> from coming from this rock band and kate had this very soft voice which was like you know, it, it, they just didn't fit in the same space. But over time, I feel like from just harmonizing with her and singing in unison, I've kind of learned where my voice can fit with her. And it's been this, this amazing thing now when we're writing together that it's like, I, I feel like I can put my voice in there and it, it works really well. We can, it, it sort of like gels together. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really exciting. And um, I mean, it's always going to be, Kate's always going to be the lead singer of the band for sure, <laughs> because it's just, her, she is Meadowlark. Her voice is Meadowlark. But it's quite fun to, to use my voice as like, a way to kind of boost that um or, or to like kind of yeah i don't know it's just interesting to i use it more like an instrument rather than trying to trying to take sort of take the lead platform on stuff or um yeah. but it's it's fun that's super cool it it must be like yeah it's super fun when like two voices can gel together and it mm. seems it just it's it's great <laughs> it works out really yeah, well definitely yeah. but it's it's definitely something which um some some artists that've got it right like i I, maybe i'm not explaining that very well i feel like um there's there's certain artists that just figure out how it works and and it works really well and i think we have only just got to that point now really maybe maybe Mm. from nightstorm actually just seeing hearing that work and being like okay there's actually room for this to happen now Mm -hmm. um so yeah but it's it's exciting it's fun and it's given us a whole different way of writing songs again yeah um, which after almost 10 years you kind of you're looking for new ways to get excited about being in the same room as someone else and writing songs <laughs> with them so it's yeah was it is it like confusing singing night storm together in the same room <laughs> yeah i actually i because i'd i'd written the lyrics and then read them off the sheet when we first recorded it and then never sang it again <laughs> and so we put a version of it up the other day and when we recorded that version like a live version of it um i had to have the lyrics in front of me because i just had no <laughs> i didn't listen to it very much after we'd done it and um, I just, yeah, really struggled to remember why yeah. I'd sang what I sung. I did, it didn't come back to me at all. I guess because it was more like a, it felt more like a spoken word piece, I guess, when mm-hmm. I was, because I was sort of like, um, 
we didn't we both didn't think about the lyrics very hard we just went away for 15 minutes wrote down like a bunch of sentences came back we didn't even try a rehearsal i think we literally just sang it so for me it was strange because i was like trying to fit the words the sentences in the song and that became it was a one take wonder we just did one version walked oh, really? away with it yeah because it was kind of like a, it was essentially a demo in fact the whole the whole second record is essentially demos mm. that we did together and when we signed with our second label guesstimate they were just so happy with how they were sounding they were like i think we just need to polish these up and 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 put these out mm. so it was it was an interesting album for us because we're both a bit i guess jaded from that because it didn't feel like we finished it properly or we didn't give the songs a chance to go and take them to someone else and see what they could put into them it was kind of just us two fumbling our way through learning how to work logic and um so yeah it felt you know and some of them work i think some of them work really well and some of them feel to me and kate maybe like too much like a like the original demo mm. and no one heard the demos so um nobody they knows don't, no one knows <laughs> yeah exactly and we're trying to tell ourselves that's just how you know it's we're, we're overthinking it but i think yeah. um there's something to be said about working with producers especially when you're in a duo having that third person to kind of to yeah to, i don't know to be the mediator almost if, if you're when you're trying to make decisions and kind of cut through the middle of you and say well you guys are both arguing about which way the song should go i think it should go here and then it becomes this kind of compromise um mm. and i think we 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 work better i think with that dynamic because we're both so precious about songs production for us can be quite painful because you're taking the song and then like pulling it in a way you maybe didn't think about it, you know mm-hmm. that, it, that it would go yeah. and um yeah so we, we're we're getting better at it now like relinquishing control a little bit and letting it letting the song just find its way because there's a thousand different ways you could produce a song and you spend the yeah. whole time thinking should it be this way should it be half time should there be no beat at all should we put more layers on like it's and there's there's no right or wrong answer and at some point someone's just got to say this is just how the song should be and um i think having that third person is really good to have that <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> um, having an extra ear is always really helpful yeah but also also like your ego maybe won't like that very much <laughs> and ego, the ego is a big problem and i think we're we're trying to get better at it now because there's less expe- expectations from people around us and ourselves um because we're no longer with our record label right um and so the idea of having control of our music is really exciting and it feels like there's less people who are pressuring us to to go a certain direction or hoping we write songs in a certain way so they serve a a purpose that suits them and more often than not it's the idea of radio songs or songs which are which have simple choruses for syncs and things and i think um they don't always i don't think there's we have well we haven't had an experience where someone's outright said that to us but you can just tell in the way that people get excited about some of your songs and not about the other ones that they have an agenda and they they have a wish for you to mm. to go a certain route and i think um and rightly so they're giving you money often and there's a reason and they they often have a track record of success, uh, success so that's like you you often listen to them but i think for us we we're, we're less excited about that part of making music now and more about excited about connecting with people and telling truthful stories and writing music which feels more honest to us and not to try and to try and tick a box or to to gain an accolade from something i think it's um Mm -hmm. yeah it's sort of almost going back to what it kind of always should have been i think we 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 got 
into the deep end maybe a bit too fast. I think um, there was quite a lot of hype around Kate starting a band. And I think with that meant that as soon as we put one demo out, we had like a lot of labels after us and a lot of interest. And which and I, I say that because um, I, that's not gloating either. I think it was wrong for it to happen that way. And it felt, mm-hmm. and at the time we just thought, wow, we've skipped like five, six years of, you know, just jumped into the end of the queue. And actually we missed all of that opportunity to to find our feet and to experiment and to, I don't know, just get comfortable with how, what kind of songwriters we want to be. We just, we just figured out, well, we just figured we could just jump in and just become a successful, a successful band. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, we're now reverse engineering it and going back to like what it should be and not <laughs> thinking about the, any of that stuff, not, you know, not gigs and playlists and anything like that we're just thinking about the songs themselves and mm-hmm. what serves them best and what serves us best and if anyone likes them then that's great that means we've we've done something right and if not then we're we've just made something we're really happy with and that's that's also cool too yeah i think that sometimes we get too caught up in like how do we make money from this or like how can we get viral how can we get more views how can we you know mm-hmm. have more attention on our music because I guess that's what success is to a lot of people. And it's it's hard not to be like, yeah, um, it's hard to say you don't want that because, you know, money is nice. And <laughs> it is, yeah. that's kind of the way to make something your career. Um, mm-hmm. But it is nice that you guys are kind of going back to the roots and like just making music because it's it feels good and you're connecting with, an audience and and people and just the basics exactly yeah <laughs> exactly i think and I, we are, I think we're kind of hoping that maybe with a more honest direction that people will find it easier to connect with us i think yeah. we became a bit of a billboard for a while of like marketing posts about hey we've put out a song listen to this or hey we have a gig go come to the gig and it's like i think now we're just keen to just connect connect with people um mm. and you know, and make it more one, one-to-one and less thinking about the masses of it all. Because I think for so long, the idea of building this audience became faceless. And I think yeah. um, it works nicer when you, when you recognize people who are kind of connecting with you more often and having a rapport with people. And I, I think we're both keen to make that more of a thing. And it allows us to be ourselves a bit more and less like a machine. And I think because we, we don't enjoy being a machine at all. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So do you think that producing music is similar in any way to maybe storyboarding for a film or music video like that maybe that's an interesting question i haven't really thought about it that way (laughs) i mean there's certainly similarities in in filmmaking and music i think Mm -hmm. but equally i feel like for me i'm very i like to keep that world those two worlds quite separate Mm -hmm. other than when i have to maybe make video content for metal arc and it becomes a weird mixture but i think um yeah it's I guess there are similarities, but ultimately I think songwriting is different because it's so internal. And I think storyboarding and writing shot lists and constructing a music video is so external because you're, you're never really making a music video for yourself. It's for consumption in a way that is mm. instantly for someone. Like you would never, you'd never meet someone who goes, I just, I just make, well, maybe they do, but I, I make music videos <laughs> for fun just for me to watch at home myself. That's less common than someone saying, I just sit home and write songs for myself. True. I think, you know, yeah. it's, it's a different, I think, um, and music videos are serving a purpose 
to a song that exists it's like a, it's like another layer to something that's already had that work done mm-hmm. i think um for me nothing nothing compares to songwriting when i when i really think about it i think it's so maybe why i'm so addicted to doing it because it's just nothing else like it it's the most vulnerable you can ever be yeah. um and especially when you're writing with someone else and they're sort of listening to you fumble your way through something which could be quite embarrassing if you're not hitting notes or not finding a good melody um so it is interesting and and yet the reward of it is fantastic because it's it feels like you've just given birth to something that's never existed before I mean, of yeah. course there's like there's only certain amount of chords and, and melodies so the chances are the song definitely exists somewhere in a very similar format but when you first write it you feel like you've just manifested something that's never existed out of, out of thin air it's the coolest um, thing. <laughs> it's amazing. And, you, and you're sort of enamored with the thing you've just done. And it doesn't even feel like uh, egotistical or arrogant. I don't think it's different because it's, I, I mean, it's, it's obviously not like this because I wouldn't ever compare it to, but I can imagine like the idea of holding this baby you just made mm. because as soon as you've made it, it's not, it's not yours anymore. Suddenly it's, it just exists in front of you like an orb or something. And it's yeah. just glowing. And you're like, this, I just made this. Like we just made this. <laughs> and it came it came from nowhere half an hour ago we just didn't have any of it and now yeah. we have all of it and it's it's amazing um and i think filmmaking is slightly different because it's um you're adding on top of that and you're just you're taking that thing that's had all of that work done quietly in a room somewhere that no one's ever heard and then finding a way to create a a, a visual mood for it i suppose that's how i look at it mm. um I, le- I, le- I think less about making stories for music videos because i don't think you can tell a a story that well in three and a half minutes when there's when it's just to the song some people can and i uh, maybe it's not my my forte but i think for me it's more about finding like translating the what the audio feels like into something visual so that when you when you're watching it you're sort of like there's something to that matches it together and it helps you just further stimulate what the audio is doing to you that's interesting um, but yeah but it's it, but it, it, other people definitely are more they want a beginning, a middle, and end. They want a story. They want a, a resolution. And I think, um, and I, I, if I was making a, a a short film or a narrative film, of course that would be where I go. But I think music's um, sometimes the music video can distract from the song, and I think that's doing the wrong thing. Mm. You almost don't really want to be thinking too much about the video because you want the song to be seeping into you as you're watching, and and the video should only really serve a purpose to further push that song further into you. So um, that kind of sounds like uh, explaining like film scores to movies like if you're watching a film the soundtrack isn't really what's at the forefront it's just kind of there to add to the film (laughs) sometimes you don't even realize it's happening yeah and and then you sort of if you really take it i mean well the most interesting thing to do is take a soundtrack off a film and see whether the the film still gives you that feeling Mm because more often than not music's got this amazing ability as we all know to kind of to instill a mood and to instill a feeling and an emotion. And I think um, movies, obviously very early on in the history of, of, of Hollywood films and feature films, figured that out. They mm-hmm. figured out that a scene could, could, uh, could be enhanced by music and therefore now it's reliant on it, um, yeah. which is even more impressive when sometimes you watch films that don't have a score or have like got a very minimal score mm-hmm. and, um, and they've used other devices to give you that same feeling. But music ultimately, is, I mean, sometimes it can be a bit of a cheat code. You know, sometimes I feel like so, like you watch a film and you're like the score starts building up and you're like, oh, it's it's telling me to feel a certain way and I feel like I'm not being shown it yet, but it's telling me and I'm it's yeah. probably going to happen at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, like an indicator. I actually think that yeah. a lot of films nowadays that I want want to watch, 
is largely because of because of the film score and because I've heard so many great things about it that I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, I want to hear this music in the context of the film instead of it being like, oh, I want to watch this film because of its story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, there's certainly films where I feel like they've figured out the marketing strategy is how good the soundtrack is, you know, mm-hmm. because they've got the right collaborators involved and that's what they kind of push further forward. And I think it's amazing that people are recognizing the work of composers and songwriters within film because i think um they are such a powerful part of the process yeah and quite often left till the end and overlooked but actually they can be really powerful and and now some of the best movies i think get the people involved really early on um Mm. on a bigger scale someone like christopher nolan brings hans zimmer on so early into the process like he's got maybe just a a synopsis or or a sentence of an idea and he'll be like right i'll get i'll get like a motif written up for this just to it's just so to maybe fun. inform me as I write the rest of it. So yeah, it's it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that, you know, some some films didn't even need music and they figured mm. they figured it out. Um and it, that just reminded me of I think the last film that like that happened for me was Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I haven't seen this film yet, but I've heard a lot about it. Yeah, it's I didn't even realize that there wasn't a score <laughs> like, right? Yeah, yeah. until after I finished watching it. And I wanted to be like, I wanted to search up all the stuff about the film and like all the mm. behind the scenes things. And I realized then that there actually wasn't any music in it. And I still felt so many emotions and everything. Like mm-hmm. it was still, it was still amazing. <laughs> I think silence can be a really powerful soundtrack. And I think, um, and it's not used enough. And that's something actually that Metalock going back to that again we kind of made we're making our songs too busy at one point and i think we weren't respecting how much space and silence and that can become such a huge part of how a song is listened to um mm. and i think writing now we're kind of not scared about space and, and 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 letting just chords breathe and not filling it with pad sounds and loads of things and not that i'm against those things they're lovely and um, i love music that becomes a wash of sound and but i think it's been really good to recognize that it doesn't need to be on every song and i think sometimes silence is a really powerful thing Mm -hmm. Um, how do you juggle all of your different projects because you are you are part of metal arc you got your music side of things and you are also filmmaker director mm -hmm. dp all that stuff (laughs) yeah i do i I, uh, yeah (laughs) i do a lot um i i don't know how i juggle it i i kind of just can't imagine life without either of them and i think therefore i always find a way to make it work i mean it comes in an expense i'm often quite burnt out from juggling both um Mm. especially when we were touring more i think that became quite tricky with you know doing a stint on the road where we weren't making much money and then coming back and having to work double to kind of make up for the time i just spent on the road not making any money Mm. so it's um it's tough but i think uh i don't think i'd enjoy either of them without having the other one to escape to um, and I feel like when the filmmaking stuff gets me down, like any creative thing you do, and I'm sure you know this as well, like there's periods where you just feel like it's, you know, should I still be doing this? And should it, you just have this self doubt because of maybe it's not gone well for a short, short while. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when that happens, I tend to sort of run to the other thing even, even harder. And, and that's really good for me, I think, because it reminds me that, you know, I don't suck. It's just, there's a, a period where some things aren't connecting and mm-hmm. then I can come back in with a bit of a fresh perspective and a feeling of uh like triumph maybe I guess because we 
maybe went and did something really great in the other thing, like in music, and then I can come back to the filmmaking and be like, okay, like now I feel good about myself again and I can put that energy back into this. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's hard <laughs> juggling both. <laughs> um, I won't lie. Do you think that, do you think it's possible for you to have any interests or hobbies that you don't turn into a career? <laughs> yes. I actually got really into surfing a couple of years ago. Um, I say really into it. I, I only do it a couple of times a year, but it's, I have no desire to become really good at it. <laughs> I think it's like, I look at the guys at the back of the girls at the back on these huge waves. And I just, I think, I just, I, can't, I don't think I want to do that. Mm-hmm. I just enjoy being, you know, with the party waves at the front um getting splashed about and i think uh that's probably been quite good for me just to have something i can go and do for fun and not feel like i need to be the best person at it yeah um because with music and film yeah there's certainly a level of um of wanting to succeed in those things and success doesn't always mean like you know i don't know money or fame in fact i'm quite i don't really would never want fame i don't think i wouldn't be able to handle that um and what comes with it but certainly you want your art to be received in a certain way critically and um mm-hmm. and i think that to me kind of sums up that external success i suppose mm. um but it's um but the older i get the less that becomes important i think um you recognize some of the fragility in those concepts and that actually when me and kate reminisce about the band we never really say the best times were the big gigs we got support gigs or the moments where we got played on national radio and those kind of things we talk about like writing songs together in small spaces and car journeys and it's the little things in between and i think when you realize those are the the things you really remember and care about you you sort of wonder why you bother so much fighting to do all the the big things because they don't really you don't you don't really remember them they they're more like a I don't know, like a trip or something, like a, a sort of like a, a yeah, a drunken night. It, it, they feel like a high that that is uh-huh. tra- temporary and wears off. And you know, whereas um, the things that fill your core memories are like these interactive moments where you're, you it's the the, the bits in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so. those moments that get really that I guess bring out more emotion in you, and that's why you remember most those moments better. I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm yeah yeah so it's um yeah i think that's just i'm trying to focus a bit more on that now i think than, that's great uh, than becoming <laughs> the best person at everything because it's never gonna happen so yeah well i say that because like i'm also really into film and photography and all that stuff and so when i am not doing music i'm also just doing photo video things but cool. it seems like I also am kind of turning that into like a bit of a career thing, you know, doing photography gigs and all of that. And like, Mm -hmm. I don't really know what I have as a hobby that I just do solely as a hobby. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're, I mean, you, you, you're right to bring it up. I think it's important to to have things which aren't monetized because suddenly everything becomes a stressor because (laughs) it's a financial, and we, we get used to there being a certain, uh, I guess recouping a certain amount from what we're making, mm. and I think it's it's that can kill the original or the initial love for it, I suppose, because it becomes a, a business venture. Um, but it, it, the great thing about those mediums are there's there's layers to them. There's there's like different levels, and you know, I think um, for me, for example, yeah, I made filmmaking a kind of career, but then photography for me, I don't really do many pay gigs with photography. 
that, that to me is still very much a, a hobby and some and a, re, and a way i can take out a camera and and load it with some film if i'm doing film photography and just like snap away and it, i know that those photos have no there's no money to be gained from that i'm just mm-hmm. spending money but it's there's a i'm getting a kick out of it in a way that i wouldn't get if i was getting paid to do it i think yeah um, for sure so it's there's definitely ways you can work within those subjects to to find hobbies within them but um mm-hmm. yeah yeah so how did you kind of get started with film and video stuff uh so i was uh, I was in Plymouth, which is down in the southwest of England, um, kind of near Cornwall on the coastline. And it means nothing was, to me. <laughs> yeah, it's just right down the bottom. Um, and it was, a, it's, it was a weird city where um, a lot of people go on holiday to Cornwall. That's kind of like our holiday you know, region of England. And Plymouth is right next to the, that place. But it's, you don't need to go through Plymouth to get to Cornwall. So you, it's, it's sort of just like forgotten about. Um, even when I say the word Plymouth in England, people were like, where is that? And it's like, <laughs> so it's this weird city because it was technically a city because it had a cathedral, but it's the smallest city ever. It's tiny um, and very kind of deprived. It's not, not a lot going on there. Not no industry at all. You know, it's about a four, four or five hour drive from London, which in England means you're kind of like, that's, you know, quite far away from it. So there wasn't many much industry. So there wasn't much hope, basically. And I think growing up, all we all I did was skate, basically, and uh, and then I got into like Nirvana and started a rock band. Um, and I just knew that those are the two things I loved doing, and I couldn't really imagine doing anything else, despite career advisors saying you should do let's do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it came to finishing uh, secondary school, which essentially is our like final mandatory education side of things. And you can choose what you want to go do next. You can go into work, you can go into college or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just decided to go and do uh, filmmaking at college. And it was really a way just to, to kill time because I was in a rock band and assumed I was going to be some big rock star one day. So <laughs> I just was like, I need to do something to kill the time and I don't want to get a job. So I'll go to college and I enjoy making skate films. So I'll just, that's, I have some understanding of holding a camera. And that was all I did. I just kind of muddled my way through college doing the bare minimum i didn't really have a love for any of the modules i didn't really enjoy any other side of filmmaking other than making skate films um and i finished college and then did a degree so went into university at plymouth as well doing filmmaking again just killing time because my band Mm -hmm. we would we were sort of touring at that point and still assuming that at some point that was going to take off and then something happened in the last year and i don't know what exactly but i think um I suddenly just found my voice in filmmaking because I was having to do the modules anyway to pass each year. Mm-hmm. I was having to do the bare minimum and just actually try and finish the projects. And I think I must have done something that I suddenly felt like I had a, a flair for. Mm-hmm. And I think it was because I tried to make a narrative film with no talking. It was just to a soundtrack. It was basically a music video, but it was more of a cinematic music video done to like a, a more of a cinematic soundtrack rather than to a song. And I just remember feeling like this works actually. And I, and, and my classmates and peers were really impressed by it as well. And I felt like that, okay, so this, I, I kind of enjoyed the reaction of them saying they enjoyed it. And I felt like, okay, this is actually, I'm getting a similar kick out of this as I would to play a gig where people were watching, you know, wanting to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from then onwards, I just, yeah, I just kind of got addicted to it. And so that, and that was right in the last year, that was the fifth year of education and film. 
it took that long for me to go to to, to kind of get it and um and then i never looked back basically i just uh, you know once i figured out that i could put visuals to song in a way that that i i figured out this formula that worked basically in my head you know there's certain shots that worked and the the editing style um i just couldn't stop basically i, I finished <laughs> university spent the last um batch of money i had on a on a camera and just started asking friends in bands if they wanted a music video for for 50 pounds and then if they said yes i'd charge them 100 pounds next time and then someone would see that video who i didn't know so i'd charge them double that and i just kept doubling (laughs) yeah i just kept doubling the money until at some point the band said i don't think we can afford that so i was like well that's the cap then Mm. and it was in 2000 and 2011 i think it was probably um so over 10 years ago now and it was around the time there was a really big youtube boom i think bands much how a band now would have tiktok and that's a big part of their marketing and just before then it was instagram it was like you know i had to have a really good instagram that it, back then it was it was youtube and bands just wanted music videos that was the that was their way of promoting themselves and it i'm not saying it isn't now but then it was the only thing they cared about it's like as long as we have a good music video well you know that's that's all they thought they needed and in some cases that's all they did need because the YouTube community was so busy and so booming. Right. So I just hoovered up every band that wanted, you know, a, a good looking music video. Um, and I was kind of charging, I think it was 800 pounds at that point. Um, and it would just be me and a camera and I'd have one assistant and we basically do everything outside um, because I couldn't, the bands couldn't afford more than that fee. And I wanted to make that as my fee. So I couldn't pay for locations and lighting and things because that would just take all the money away or if i charge it to them they would say that's too much money so almost every video was a sunset in (laughs) a forest or in a field or on a cliff or something um because i knew i could make that look really attractive and um and yeah it was fun i just i got a chance to experiment for about probably two or three years um and slowly but surely bands were asking were coming to me with a bit more money each time so I, i could afford maybe a location but no lighting and then eventually a location and lighting and then i could afford a makeup artist and i could afford and it suddenly the crews grew very very naturally it was never a, a, a you know um an obvious jump until i got um uh, represented by a production company and then and, it, and it, they weren't an established production company i might add they were just um a bunch of kids the same age as me who were like we think we can blag some of the bigger uh, pitches the, the sort of briefs that the, the major labels were and there's no other way to get those unless you are sort of you have you're represented basically at a, it's rare that a young independent filmmaker would would get the opportunity to do a big sony music video um and maybe it happens more now but back then it was definitely unheard of um so they started a production company and i was the first director to be represented by them and then i got my first sony pitch which would have been 2012 or 13 um for a band called don broco um like a rock band who i've i've worked with many years since as well um and i think it was yeah eight thousand pound budget which to me at the time was insane (laughs) yeah i'd worked i'd only worked with like maybe two thousand pounds max at that point so i just i was dreaming up all these things we could do but the reality was it was still relatively low budget and um (laughs) but we made something really fun and um i think once i'd done once i'd they'd started that company i'd done one of those videos it the ball just started rolling at that point and um yeah i started getting more pitches come through from major labels and uh, bigger budgets and i got an opportunity to be 
uh, a director because at that point as well I'd, I'd been shooting and directing i'd never really had a director of photography work mm. with me before um, did you edit any of the videos or were you yeah, just directing I, no i definitely i still continue to edit quite a lot mainly because i was i'm quite um proficient at, at editing and it's always been something i've been quite good at May, probably because i did skate films and i've always been had a, an idea of how music should uh, or film should cut to music mm. um and it's with when you're dealing with music video budgets they're they're never there's never enough money <laughs> so if there's ways you can save money so for example me editing um and um but i wouldn't get paid for it but it means like we can save that bit of money and put it into getting a cooler bit of kit or a, a nicer location um it's only more recently now i've really had editors doing videos for me and um and i really enjoy it now because i think it um it removes you a little bit from what you shot on the day because i think you get attached to the wrong thing sometimes sometimes the the things you most love that you captured aren't serving the film at all and mm. you only want it because you remember how cool it looked at the time or how how long it took to set it up or something mm -hmm. um and the reality is it's just it's not doing any, it's not doing anything so you just an, an editor would skim through it they wouldn't have any affiliation to the the process of the shot mm. they just look at it and go does that fit no in the bin and it's mm. like and it's way nicer because when you see the final video then you're seeing it for what it should be rather than your memory of it on the set on the set so i really enjoy now having an editor edit my work i've sort of become a bit like uh, yeah i don't enjoy editing as much now um <laughs> because i I've, i'm so used to have someone else doing it and me watching the film like almost as if i'm an audience member and i get to enjoy it like someone who's um watching it for the first time and it's mm. really fun how different is it from like what you've had what you had in mind when you were directing on set and all that and the final product uh sometimes it's really similar i often have like an edit plan in fact when you talked about storyboards before i actually write edit plans more than storyboards i kind of map the song out by by structure so like you know zero seconds to 15 seconds is verse one and then vice versa for the the whole song basically and um and then i map out what's happening in each part so that i can almost watch the video on paper first in my head and see if it flows and then and then i can write a shot list from that and say okay well you know in in verse one three and the middle eight we're in this location so i need to write a shot list that to make sure we capture everything there mm. um so yeah so often i'll have that and i'll give that to an ed editor and say like this is kind of the template but within that, you know, how they cut it and which shots they choose from, because we're never, we're never just shooting like exactly to that shot plan. You know, we're doing mm -hmm. full takes of the song. We're suddenly getting excited and running <laughs> over the other side of the room because the light's doing something by the window. We're, we're just capturing extra things. And um, when they've got that all in front of them, they've, they've maybe got my plan to look at, but then they can, they can diverge and they can go off and, um, mm. you know, and just, and just find those amazing moments we captured on the day you know, and, and put those in somehow. That's cool. Um, yeah, it's fun. It's really, it's great. It's a, the more collaboration is involved, the more I love the projects, I think. The, mm. You know, I, I find the lower budget things where I'm often still DPing and directing and editing at the same time. I enjoy those less because I'm, I'm not being, I'm not sharing that as much and I, I'm not getting surprised. Um, one of my favorite things, and it's similar to songwriting, it's my favorite things is when I've written a, an idea for a song, um, 
and I send it to Kate. I assume I know what she's going to do melody wise. And she does, and she comes back with something. I'm just like, this is unbelievable. <laughs> I think my favorite version of that was our song lightning. Um, I sent her the full produced demo of that, which is the same version we released. Um, and I was going to use it for myself. I'd kind of written it about something completely different to what she wrote it about. Mm. But I sent her, I sent her the instrumental anyway and just said like, you know, what do you think of this? And, uh, and then within like an hour, she'd like written the lyrics and the melodies and she sent it back. And I just didn't, I'd never heard those melodies over that song. I couldn't imagine how she'd come up with the, um, yeah, just the placement of it all. But I was so surprised. It made me love the song in a totally different way. And I think filmmaking is the same. You know, people come get involved and, and, sh- and just show you something and you're like, I can't believe you've come up with this because it's like, I already had an idea for what this is going to be today. And now you're doing something which is exceeding that. And it's amazing. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. I'm just going to turn a lamp on quickly because it's definitely getting quite dark. For like music videos, like how much of your ideas, it's like, I guess similar to like the, how much the final product is your vision versus the editor's mm. vision. Like how much is like the artist or the band's vision versus your vision for the music video? I think the bigger the artist, the less control you have mm. for sure. I remember um, I did a video for, for Nick Jonas um, in 2021. So last year. And I had an idea that was a sequel to his big, um, his big video from that first campaign. What was it? What was the song called again? Um, I can't remember what the song was called. It's it, 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 with this. <laughs> no, I think. Oh, no, this is heaven is the one I did, but there was the one before, oh, okay. I think maybe spaceman, I think it was called or like, maybe I'm getting mixed up with someone else there. Anyway, this is really bad. That I can't remember. But anyway, the, the first video he put out was, um, was him, you know, stuck on a planet. And, uh, and mm. then at the end he jet, he jet packs off. And I remember thinking, okay, I got the opportunity to, to write an idea and I said to the record label, like, it feels like that there should be a sequel to that. I think it even said to be continued at the end of the video. And I was like, so should we continue it? And they said, well, if you write a sequel, we'll probably go with that because, you know, it makes sense for the campaign. And I was like, brilliant. I'll, I'll write a sequel. And I'll, I wrote one where he lands in England and it's abandoned. He's at the space station and um, th- there's no one left on the world essentially apart from him. And he's having to... Um, figure out how to come to terms with that, and it was it was a really cool idea. But um, the night before the shoot, he we had a conversation, and he hadn't heard the idea yet, and he didn't want it to be space related at all. Mm. But by this point, this was the night before the shoot. We already had the space station looking location. All the props were space related. <laughs> the whole idea was space related. Yeah. There was no way to not have a space related video, and so the I had to very quickly figure out how to sort of make it not just a space video and make it something else mm. um so the artist can and that's fine it's, it's his song it's his vision so i'm there to serve that but it's um yeah you sort of it can take you you know your idea can suddenly become something very different and yeah. uh it's it was you know and that happens a lot at that level i think you know the artists are very attached to what they're doing and they can quite often change their minds and um yeah, and when they're giving you that much money to make something they kind of have the say mm-hmm. um you, there's no way to really um to fight them on that because they'll just be like well we'll get someone else who will do what we want to do so um you sort of have to try and find the middle ground and collaborate with them so that your idea still is still in there but it's also serving their idea too yeah um, but it's not easy it's quite quite tricky and sometimes i like 
so where I, where I don't like the low budget videos because I'm doing all the jobs at once, mm-hmm. I really like them because I have a lot more control in bringing my own vision to life mm-hmm. because there's less money. So they're less picky. I think they're aware that like whatever they get back is going to be useful rather than. Right. Um, so it's, it's, I have a lot more control in those situations and, and I love collaborating. So I really enjoy bringing the artist in. I, I never, I, I would never write something and say, I don't care what your opinion is. We should just make this because I know it's going to be really good. I think it's way cooler to be, to say like, here's an initial idea. What do you think of it? And then see if it sparks ideas from them because then they're getting excited about your concept and they're building on what you've already got. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really fun then because you're just building blocks together, much like songwriting again, I guess. And so eventually you get to the end and you're like, okay, we've got an idea here. This actually works really well. <laughs> um, and let's, let's go and make it. Um, so, yeah. That's cool. That it, it's cool how you've like kind of, it seems like you've grown pretty, pretty organically, naturally from like mm-hmm. working with small indie bands to, to international pop stars like Nick Jonas. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a real beauty in both. I think a lot of people assume that I would, stop doing the smaller budget work and just try and go for the bigger stuff mm. and i still i still pitch regularly on, on 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 bigger budget pieces but i i don't think i could ever stop doing the lower budget stuff because it's also an amazing time to experiment when you get the bigger jobs it has to be planned to a t mm. and you can't really just you can't really go and make it up as you're going along whereas the smaller ones you can have a much vaguer idea because when there's little money involved, you can't be that meticulous because there's too many variables that that could stray from that. Because mm-hmm. you're not, you haven't got a thousand, you know, well, not a thousand, you haven't got 60 people on set to make sure everything's going to go right. You've got five or six people that are willing to get involved and stretch themselves really thin to make something that could be really cool. And so, and you have to lean on those people and lean on the the variables that aren't in your control. And I think that's really, and you learn so much because these happy accidents take place that are, yeah just so surprising and so inspiring and then that mm-hmm. informs something later down the line where you know i'll be doing a bigger job and i'll talk to a dp or a producer and be like actually i had this idea that came from one of our lower budget videos where we put some stuff in front of the lens or did something really mm-hmm. wacky and it looked really cool mm-hmm. and and then the big labels get excited by it and all of a sudden you're like that was totally worth it me doing you know bending myself over backwards to to make this low budget piece which i got didn't get paid for yeah. is now become a, a key component of this bigger budget piece you know mm-hmm. yeah well i have like a couple different questions one is like so what is the difference between being a director and a director of photography <laughs> sure um so a director would be the person who um i guess is steering the ship because i was going to say comes up with the idea but sometimes you have writers or you have a brief but it's the person that can sort of pull it all together that has an idea that has the overall idea in their heads I guess with all the ingredients in front of them, if the label want there to be, um, you know, a, a performance and a narrative scene, and they want it to be in a specific place, you take those ingredients and you can see the final thing. You know that it's going to be shot a certain way, and it's going to have certain coloured lighting, and the final grade is going to be a certain texture to it. You just have the vision in your mind, and therefore you can pull together the crew who can then best achieve that. So I'd say that the way it's like a pyramid and it's like the director that's at the top and not because he's the most important, but because he just is the, the brain of the, the operation and has to, if anyone comes up to him or her during a shoot or them mm-hmm. <laughs> or, and it's, um, and, <laughs> and says like, well, 
why is this like this? They, the director has to know every inch of that idea so they can say, the reason we're doing it like this is because of this. You sort of thought about every reason something is mm-hmm. happening. Um, and so, for example, uh, well, not even for example, but I suppose you, you've got this idea, you've got this concept, you've collaborated with the label, and now it's about bringing it to life. So you say, my first port of call would be to find, other than a producer, I guess, who's probably already I'm working with um, via my production company, um, it would be to find a director of photography. It'd be to find the person who's going to lens this whole piece, who's going to kind of take your overall idea and say, well, this is how we're going to achieve it with light and lenses and cameras and things. And then, and that is essentially a director of photography's role. They're not really involved in the story or the narrative side of it, really. They're just taking what you've got in your head or on paper and finding a way to, to project that onto a screen, essentially. They're trying to, you know, you're saying, if I'm saying I want it to be really fast paced and energetic and like frenetic, they're going to be like, okay, that's handheld. And probably, and if I'm like, I want it to be really dramatic and really shadowy, they're like, okay, well, that's going to be a lot of hard light then. And we'll use a lot of beams. And, um, or I might say, I want it really smooth and elegant and really poppy and bright. And they're like, okay, well, that's going to be steady cam and soft light and, you know, maybe, and maybe pastel colors and, and that, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's, they're just taking what you're doing and translating it just in a visual side of things. Um, and then, so then they'll pick their gaffer. In England, we'd, I'd say we'd have a gaffer, I suppose. Um, and that's, your, that's their sort of head of lighting, essentially. Mm. And then the DP will say to the lighting guy, like, so I'm going to go for something soft here. And then the lighting guy will be like, well, this specific lamp will do that. And it becomes this trickle-down effect where you have your heads of department. So your, you know, your uh, director of photography, your gaffer who does lighting, your art director who's just doing props and styling and production design. Um, I guess your colorist is another head of department. You'd have all these people that are, and then within those people, they'll have their assistants and their, and suddenly the crew is expanding. But, <laughs> but really your first port of call is going to be your, for me, would be my director of photography and my producer on, and my assistant director. And often having an assistant director, they're just essentially being your voice on set. So you can, you can stay focused and they can run around and say in 10 minutes, we need this person to be here. And in half an hour, we need to be wrapping for lunch. You know, they're just keeping an eye on things in a more bird's eye point of view. But, um, so on set often, I don't talk to anyone, but if on a big set, director of photography, assistant director, and a producer, and then then there's like 57 other people milling about that I just (laughs) assume are doing something really important to serve the thing I'm making. But it makes it less overwhelming when you realize that it's all just a trickle down effect. You're just going to say this to that person. They're going to say it to that person. And then that becomes this, you know, and, you, and then you watch it just take place because you have these amazing skilled people that are running around and putting it together. I've probably explained that so badly, but it's. No, that's it made a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's um, so, but when I'm, I guess because I started by doing directing and shooting, I have a love for both of those processes. I don't love doing it at the same time because I feel like when you're, when you're directing, you're looking at performance and when you're shooting, you're looking at composure and you can't really do those things at the same time. If I'm holding a camera and I'm trying to keep the artist in a certain place in the frame because it looks amazing, I'm not really watching what they're doing. I'm just watching their placement. Mm-hmm. So I find it difficult to, I always walk away and watch the final thing and think I've, I've missed, I've missed some things here because I was mm. focusing on the wrong thing. 
but I love shooting and I love directing. So to do those separately, I really enjoy. And more recently in the last couple of years, I've been getting, uh, you know, uh, booked just as a director of photography. Um, and I, it doesn't happen all that often because it's not, it's not my, my, um, my main thing, what I'm known for. But, um, I think the people I've worked with have really enjoyed it because I have a, an affiliation to directing. Yeah. And although it's not my role on that day to do that, I, I know sometimes what the director's going through and I always want to serve them more mm. so than my own ego or my own ideas of, of what the visual should be. And I think it also helps me develop a better language because I'm sure, you, you know, I don't know what level of videos filmmaking you're doing at the moment, but the more people get involved, the more sometimes your idea runs away from itself. And I, because often because you've not translated them, you know, the best way for it to happen or the way you see it. And so by shooting or, or being a director of photography, I know so much more about lighting now. So my shorthand with, with a director of photography on set when I'm directing can be so much quicker and I can have such a, an understanding with them on why something might take longer to set up or why, you know, why they're, they're choosing a certain light for something. I can see that and in my head go, I totally understand why you're choosing that and I don't need to, to second guess it or question it because, mm -hmm. you know, um, so it's amazing. And I feel like I've been blessed because I've worked with so many great director of photography, um, director of photographers, <laughs> DPs over the years that I've kind of learned from them. And I think mm -hmm. um, it's, they've all, I've almost had like the best teachers, like dozens of the best teachers over the years to just sort of teach me about light and about uh, composure. Yeah, that's amazing. It's like one whole, one organism, just so many mm. people working together. And yeah. It totally makes sense that like once you've worn all these different hats and you kind of understand everything better, then you can have more concise ideas and, and everything, how everything works. Absolutely. Yeah. But I never, it, it wasn't always that way though. I, when I first um, moved from doing, you know, one, two, three person crews to like having, I guess at that point, maybe 10 or 15, 20 people on set, mm -hmm. when I first started doing the, the, the bigger briefs. Um, I didn't enjoy it at all because I hadn't figured out how to translate that properly. I just felt like the whole time everyone was taking too long and they weren't doing it how mm -hmm. I was, how I thought I was telling it to them. And I'm, I became really frustrated and yeah, I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. And it took me a long time to understand how to translate my idea clear, clearly and concisely and to choose the right people. And, um, and now I really enjoy it, but it, it definitely was an, a hard process for me to also to relinquish control. Mm -hmm. because you are having to trust and lean on these people um and yeah. their skill set which is by far greater than mine but it sometimes feels like you're fighting a little bit because they get quite passionate about their ideas and rightly so they're trying to make the best thing with you mm -hmm. and you have to sometimes trust them even if you think it's the wrong idea you know if a production yeah. design is saying it should be this color for this reason and you're like well in my head it was a totally different color it's like they're saying it because they've done a thousand of these and they they really know Whereas I'm just, I have an inkling and I'm like, okay, I'm going to let go of this for a second because this person is, they have a much better, and they have a reason as well. They're not saying it to, to annoy me. They're saying it because <laughs> they, they genuinely have a, you know, a better idea. And, um, and now experience. I really, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And they've done their 10,000 hours in that field and I haven't. So I think, um, it's, and now I really enjoy it. I really enjoy getting surprised by what people bring to the table and because it's probably going to exceed my expectations by tenfold. So. Mm. Would you say that you're introverted or extroverted? 
That's really difficult. I think I am an extrovert, but it's I think it's a hat I put on mm. because I I also am someone who can be quite anxious and quite um I can recoil quite a bit some, you know, depending on what the situation is. I think I've learned to be extroverted through through the work. Yeah. And and just through I guess being in bands over the years as well. You can't really be an introvert in in a rock band, <laughs> mm-hmm. really. And I was the front man as well, so it's kind of like I've, I've kind of really enjoyed um using these like spaces to 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 have a confidence um when even though deep down i'm not that i haven't you know i'm not that self-confident i'm not mm. that i don't have much self-esteem but i find in those situations i can sort of assume it probably much like you know david bowie in the supermarket was probably very different <laughs> to D- david bowie on the stage yeah <laughs> um it's similar i feel like it's i can assume this person that's a bit more outgoing and i and mm-hmm. i genuinely enjoy it because i feel like i'm in a space where it's calling for me to do that um and mm-hmm. then i quite enjoy coming back and hiding away and not being that loud obnoxious person <laughs> and running around telling people what to do yeah so. yeah because i was i cannot imagine being a director or like mm. lead a team or a group in that kind of situation yeah. just because i'm so introverted and i mm. don't feel comfortable <laughs> like I mean, you're not exactly just bossing people around, but like, you know, but you're, you're right people... though. But it, yeah, I yeah. think you're 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 totally right though. But it's that what I was saying before about having your sort of direct heads of department that kind of yeah. sometimes removes the need to be this bombastic, you know, uh, loud person on set. I I really don't enjoy shouting. I'm not a shouter, um, and I don't particularly think people do their best work when they're being shouted at to do it. Yeah. I think conversations work better and people can ask questions and then it might take five minutes longer, but you're going to get better results. Um, I've, I've worked with introverted directors as a DP and it's, it's fascinating. They just, they have a different sensibility to me and I think they take a bit more time thinking about what they're going to say and how they're going to say it. But it means when they do say it, it's the right thing. And it's like, and everyone's listening because they don't talk much on set otherwise other than them saying i I'm, i think we should try this differently or i think maybe we should do it over here and i think um the beautiful thing is when you get to a level where you have a huge crew you don't really need to be like you have other people that are the voices i remember mm-hmm. when i i came to la in came went to la in um <laughs> 2016 i think it was and it was my only uh video i shot there um for this artist called outer sight and I'd never worked with an American crew and I was worried about, because I'm, although I am extroverted on set, I'm not, like I said, a shouter. I'm not a hype man. I don't like run around and like, you know, gas <laughs> people up. I'm just kind of like, I think we should do this and this is why. And I'm confident about it, but it's not like, but I had this amazing um, first AD, assistant director, uh, who became the sort of hype man on set. He was running around, jumping around <laughs> and, and getting everyone really excited. and. And I was like, that's great because I couldn't have done that. I couldn't be that person, but the set needed it. We had, you know, 20 or 30 extras who all needed to dance as if they were at some sort of like party. And um, you just can't be in the background being like, can you guys party a little bit now, please? Yeah. Like you, you need someone who's like, everyone get up and dance and jump around. And, yeah. and he was amazing for that. And um, I was so thankful because it was such a worry for me to go to a place where you know, I hadn't worked with American crews before. It's a slightly different process to working in the UK and mm. um, 
it was just yeah i was just very lucky to have someone who could become that and i think and that's why i think you i would never i would say you'd never have to worry about being an introvert or, or ever worry that an introvert can't be a director i think quite the mm-hmm. opposite i think sometimes intro introversion is like introversion is that maybe yeah. a thing i'm not sure is yeah. a really wonderful tool i think it means that there's just a bit more thought going into things and often that means everything comes out better mm. whereas i'm a little bit more f- frantic and excited i'm like a puppy i think someone <laughs> said my my there's like a color test thing and apparently i'm yellow i think which is like this like a sun like you know, a sunflower sunchild like golden <laughs> <just> retriever <laughs> exactly like a golden retriever yeah um and i and i i think that can become hopefully infectious on set because people get excited by my excitement mm-hmm. um but equally it means we do end up just getting sidetracked sometimes because we we're running around going crazy being like this looks great let's shoot over here and yeah you know, um <laughs> yeah well it sounds like fun it's fun yeah it's good fun <laughs> and uh I just wanted to backtrack a bit when you, where you said that it took you five years to find your kind of film filmmaking voice. Mm. But I guess in the grand scheme of things, that actually isn't like a long time. Like you made it sound like it's a really long time, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's actually not, be, not really. I think because it was, I think because I did five years of education in film yeah. and four of them were not a waste of time, but I wasn't trying. Mm. I think that to me feels like it took too long to find my voice because I, but maybe I, I just wasn't looking for it. I think, and so actually, when I really think about it, this is me backtracking on my own answer. <laughs> I think, um, I guess all of that stuff I'd learned had seeped in. I just didn't have a way to 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 execute it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, actually, by that fifth year, when I suddenly got the the kind of bug for it, um, I guess all of it all of it was there. All the tools were already in me, so I had so much to to dip in and to use. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of people ask me afterwards whether they recommended pursuing education in film and i think um there's like it's such a it's a pro and con situation i think i would have got further quicker if i'd just gone and done it as a career straight away and maybe worked my way up but then equally i've no idea whether the reason my i have my voice and the way my films look a certain way and whatever is because i had all of that time to to learn about film making yeah. and to go out and practice and make silly films with my friends i, I don't know it's it's I don't, I don't really know what what my if my style's a result of that process or something else so yeah it's tricky because right, i will say that like because i i studied flute in university okay i got yeah, like yeah. a music performance degree and so wow. i did it i did a bachelor's i did a master's and i don't think i actually like I have a completely different relationship with the flute now, like mm-hmm. after graduating, after finishing all my degrees, because I mean, because of Twitch really, I and the pandemic, like mm-hmm. I, you can't play with anybody. And so, and I love composing and I started recording and playing on top of myself. And then mm-hmm. like, I could take it out of the classical world and put it in a different context. And I think at that point, that's how I found my voice with flute playing and like i could be more expressive and all that but because of all the schooling i think similarly in a way like i had i've been given all the tools to be able to play my instrument well Mm -hmm. um but it wasn't like but i don't think i was able to be expressive or free with the music while i was still in school no but i think by learning 
Yeah, I think you said it quite rightly there. I think when you've learned something so well or to such a high standard, mm-hmm. you're then kind of able to go outside the lines yeah. and find a more interesting way of doing something. I think innovation comes from knowing something really well and then I guess like being able to step outside of the the guidelines or or the kind of parameters of that instrument. Yeah. Um I think some of the best things uh, are made that way. Mm-hmm. When I hear interviews with like Justin Vernon and stuff, it's like, yeah. <laughs> they, it's amazing because they sort of say they've mastered uh, some instruments and they're like, well, let's try and use the instrument in a wrong way. Right. And because, they're so, because they're such proficient players and they understand the instrument so well, them playing it the wrong way is never going to sound bad. <laughs> it will sound really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think vice versa, I imagine with, with the flute, it's like once you've, once you've got it to such a high standard, like not even just you, the flute itself, but other instruments, when you understand music in a certain way to, to a high standard, you're able to kind of just move outside the lines a little bit. And that's where all the fun stuff is. Exactly. Um, it's the other way. So, But also, yeah, like just going out and doing it could be more helpful than sitting in a lecture room hall and like <laughs> yeah, studying and being forced. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But I think there's pros and cons to both. And I, I, uh, for a long time said to everyone like to, to when younger people would email me and say like do i go to college or do i just i always say no don't go to college it's a waste of time i wasted five years there and didn't learn anything <laughs> and now i look back and i'm like well, i've realized I know, I yeah i know so much <laughs> about film and i'm like well where did i learn that because i didn't just pick it up afterwards i mm. i think by the point i was out of university i stopped researching into the 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 hows and whys of film and i just would would go and do Mm-hmm. And I'd learn from the mistakes, but yes. all the other stuff—the the theory would must have—I think I already had a platform and a basis for that. So I think it's probably really important to to, to know those things because then you sort of have an understanding of what when is it right to go off the path and when is it right to stay on the path. And mm-hmm. um, but I guess it's just though. it'd be nice. It's nice to have a grasp of kind of everything in general, have a mm-hmm. good foundation, and then do whatever after. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, it's what comes after is the most interesting part. And I think a lot of people, they, they're not sure when they finish university or when they have their degree, it's like, that's the hard part. And I think that's actually where you're brave enough to step outside the box. You can find a really interesting thing and you found a really interesting thing to do with your mm-hmm. skill and with your degree. And I think, um, and maybe out of necessity, like you said, it was the pandemic and it's like, but sometimes the, the, having these, I guess, these boxes, gives you these ceilings that you can't go past it gives you a sort of space to do something in because otherwise it's just an overwhelming amount of possibilities and it's like well i could do anything and then when you have a limitation it's like okay i have to work within the limitation so Mm -hmm. um and that's actually that's often when when the best stuff happens because you you don't just sit in front of a blank page being like i don't know what to do (laughs) um so yeah so i know that you filmed a documentary for orla gartland like yeah. how is that different from because you mainly do music videos right yeah 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 how i is think that? um i think that was an amazing experience because a it was at middle farm studios um which is where metal art first recorded and um i, I you know I, i'd been friends with pete who runs that studio for, for, for a decade so it was a really comfortable space and i know it knew it so well that i knew working in that space would be comfortable for me comfortable for all um i think as well as a musician i i kind of understood the process of making an album and it's different for everyone you know you're going for that experience right now all is going for that that was her first experience of it 
Mm. I think um, I kind of just knew where to put the camera, I think, to capture what I felt was an honest portrayal of that. And actually the the whole format for that documentary was was out of a, a limitation because I, I couldn't make it for the whole thing. Mm. And I was like, and I didn't, I didn't want to not be involved in it. Um, so I suggested to Orla if she records all of it on VHS, so it has mm-hmm. a texture to it, it has this home video feel. And then I'll come in on the last day and I'll do a sort of like, a sort of reflective day of shooting, which we can sort of weave in and out the story. So you're always going back to this final day when she's learned everything through the process. And then you're going back to this crazy, uh, you know, frenetic home video footage of her and everyone just goofing about in the studio. But it was this really nice merriment of what an album actually is like. It's like, it's really silly and fun and crazy and late nights and just like random stuff happening. And, but then there's this really uh, serious part of the end when you're reflecting on the thing you've made and like how important this is going to be for you and your career and for yourself. And I think it, the film really like works for that reason. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have captured all the, the chaos in the same way they did with each other because they were so, you know, she had a band there and they, they knew each other far better than I know them all. And, and when there's an alien presence in the room, you're always going to get people who freeze up. And luckily, all is like we know each other a little bit, so it helped. But I would never have got the honesty, we, you know, that they got from it. And it, um, it's such a fun piece. And I and I had my so I finished filming it, and it was there was no budget to make it really. I think all was very gracious and gave me some money afterwards to say thank you, um, which I divided up to the people that were involved. But at the time, I was like, I'll film it. I'll get. The, you know 10 tapes of vhs and i'll transfer those to digital and i'll edit it and so i went through all the footage which was like i think in total about four hours <laughs> once i cut down once i took every best moment from every clip it was about really? four hours on the timeline and i just looked at it and i was like i am so overwhelmed i can't yeah. i don't know how to make a story from this and it's and a, so it's I gave a it, 25 minute video right <laughs> it's insane and so i so i passed it on to my friend um Ant Thornton, who's who I grew up with, he was actually at university with me, and he he went and did a band that got quite successful, and then then the band broke up, and he was a postman for a little bit, and <laughs> then he's now gone back into filmmaking again. So it was a really wonderful, and that was his first project, kind of back was him editing this film for me, and he did such a good job. I just could not have found a way to to cut all of that stuff out and mm-hmm. figure out what the important stuff is without him. It, I, it was such an overwhelming task, and he spent. I, he added it up it was something crazy like a hundred and something hours or something editing it um but we're both so proud of it and i think it was really nice that orla was so proud of it and we screened it in like a little cinema in london and like mm. it's just i just now have such a fond memory of that process because i got my favorite collaborators involved right at the end and you know and edited it and then i was like well this looks so good now that we should get my friend to do the sound mix and so the jj who produced metalock's first record did the sound mix for it and then I, my friend Cam, who's a colorist, who's just got into like the industry, I was like, could you have a look at this too? And he was like, of course. And we just kind of all, all got involved and it was a really, yeah, really fun piece. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it'd be interesting to know actually, I mean, obviously it's difficult because you're sat in front of the person who made it, but when you <laughs> watched it, did you, as a musician, what did you get from it? Like, did it, was it mostly interesting to see all his life or did you feel like there was a really interesting 
angle of just understanding how a record's made in that situation like what what kind of i'm just curious there isn't a right or wrong answer mm. for that i'm just curious about what someone who's watched it would took from it um i think is more about uh just like orla's life and like being able to see into what it's like for her being a musician and like mm. her journey and and what got her to that moment of making an album and i mean and also what goes into it um mm. but i think i was more interested in just the fact that it was this is like her life this she's showing yeah. a piece of her life um because i am i'm also a huge fan of orla and like her yeah, music's yeah. amazing um and i am always super interested in like the details of production and how a song comes together what people do what like how they mix it like i'm super mm -hmm. interested in all that stuff too but like i think what got me most was just seeing mm -hmm. her and like how she felt w in all this and like even just you talking about it i got goosebumps again <laughs> mm. it's really interesting the i uh, just re remembered the first we put like a sizzle reel at the start which kind yeah. of gets people who maybe haven't heard of all before like up to speed with who she is and where, what she's done, you know, and I, and that idea came so late into the video. We I'd, we'd made the documentary, and then I remember thinking, like, I really want someone who doesn't know who Orla is to watch to be able to watch this and go very quickly understand the stakes of it. Like, kind of, yeah. I mean, not the stakes, but like, it felt for some reason when Orla did a record it, that it was more important than a lot of other artists. Maybe because she's independent as well. And she's mm -hmm. just been grafting so hard for so long. It's such a high standard as well. Like she's, yeah. you know, there's just, she's never missed with like how good all of her songwriting and production is and, and um, all the content she puts out. So I was like, this, I kind of want this to be a, a summary that then is like chapter two, like all mm -hmm. her album one. And then what happens after that is like from this moment onwards. So it's, yeah. um, it's actually really cool that you, got like yeah got that from 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 her as well from in the piece because she's very personable but equally i was like conscious that i really wanted it to be a she's quite open anyway but this was intimate in another way mm -hmm. and i and i really was really proud that we managed to that was our intention was to make it feel very intimate and for people to kind of really see behind the curtain with her and not yeah you know not kind of like overly curate it so that it makes the best picture it's like more just like here's just what it was like every day to do this thing yeah and definitely mm. i think that using the vhs and like uh just having them giving them the camera and just having mm. them film themselves like that was that was a really smart thing to do yeah i mean you I were saying like, you yeah. couldn't even be there so i couldn't like, yeah there was there was no other way to, had do it. to be that way <laughs> yeah but i i didn't want to i didn't want my my lack of presence to to be the thing that ruined the piece i was like i need to look at this as a variable not mm -hmm. a limitation and I think um, it just became an ingredient rather or a component exactly. rather than a, yeah. And, um, and I think I would have done a worse, if I was there shooting every day, <laughs> knowing how much I shot on just one day, if I was there for like two or three weeks, mm. it just would have been too much. I don't know. It, I wouldn't have better make, it would just been nothing. I think it would have been just too long and drawn out and, and boring. I think, I think the merriment of chaos, which all there is <laughs> a, a, along with her, like professionalism, which also she is. Somehow she is like the the epitome of both those two things. Like <laughs> someone who is so business savvy and smart and professional, who also has the most fun I've ever seen whilst doing what she does. So it's like, yeah, 
Yeah, the energy is pretty contagious. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> have you um have you seen her live? No, I haven't. Oh, well, I wasn't sure because she she was over in the states with um. Actually, don't she she played the states yet? I'm not sure she's done a headline tour there. I can't remember. Mm, I don't think so. But she was yeah. playing with Dodie. She but was playing with Dodie. I'm up yeah. in Canada in Calgary, and like oh, of nobody course. comes yeah, here. Yeah, sorry, I totally so. forgot you're not actually in the states. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully you get a chance because it's something else live. It's mm-hmm. like there's some she does something where the room become like everyone becomes a member of the band essentially like that's what it feels like <laughs> everyone is a safe space to sing and to dance and to laugh and she somehow manages to shrink the stage to like it feels like you're all playing on the same level even though you're yeah. just watching but i'm a huge fan anyway so it's like i've always been a big <laughs> fan of all i actually it was really funny i watched her first ever band gig like mm-hmm. um I think it was her first, or, or the first time she was on in-ear monitors, I think, at this festival we played years and years ago. And she, would, she was just amazing. It was like the best thing I've ever seen. I couldn't believe it. And I knew prior to her going up there that she was, it was a, a new thing. She had all these new band members and it was a big thing for her. And we, we ran backstage after she finished and we were all like buzzing, like, oh my God, oh my God. Like, <laughs> and she just burst out crying. She's like, Aww. that was so bad. She's like, that was oh, so no. bad. I, I, I ruined it. I'll never play again. And I was just like, absolutely not like she obviously had i think her ears kept falling out and she kept thinking she was messing up and no i was like i'm a savvy musician i didn't notice at all mm. and i was just like so i felt so sad that she didn't get to share the experience we were having on her first band gig mm. um but obviously since she's just like i mean she owns the stage it's insane she's killing so. it <laughs> yeah 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 we'd love to get her on the podcast also <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it'd be totally cool i mean i'm sure she, I mean, she's such an interesting person to talk to. I'm sure that would be easy to do. Yeah. Um, but she's also very busy. So it's like, I know, yeah. <laughs> um, nine, um, nine times out of 10 when I text her, it's always like she's like in between like doing a thousand things at once. So I mean, she went on tour with Dodie in the States and then didn't she just continue to do a, her own Europe tour? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whilst while she was out there, she was like recording songs as well. And like, I just don't know how yeah. she, I literally don't know how she does it. It's like, yeah, she's probably the hardest working woman in show business i think <laughs> like especially because she's independent i mean it blows her mind that she mm. just hasn't such a small team around her but it means that when like when she asked me to get involved with the live videos i shot at middle farm i don't know if you saw the i think dodie was in the videos as well um we did like zombie and madison and oh uh, yeah and two other those. songs and um you know those she was i remember her saying like you know I, it's, i'm really sorry she kept apologizing like i don't have like the budgets like a label would have and i'm like dude i I would pay you to come and do this. Like it's, <laughs> I know the kind of fun we're going to have making this thing and how collaborative she is in terms of like every aspect of what she does. And um, it was such a, like the best two days being there doing those. Cause like mm-hmm. you sort of get to become a part of the band, like because the videos are one take, the yeah. stakes were as high for me getting my take right as it was for them playing it right. So it's like this really symbiotic thing. And again, something I love doing because it's just mm-hmm. the, the energy is like you feel like you're playing an instrument with the camera because you're kind of like finding a place to put it and mapping out a journey where it should be at different mm. parts of the song and how do you make it interesting if it's just one angle or right. one camera move so it's it's really fun yeah um, it definitely came across the videos yeah <laughs> yeah zombie was chaos it was like yeah they just, i don't think they even planned the dance thing they just broke into it and i was like oh my god <laughs> like they're dancing i need to run back in and capture this but it was it was so fun Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, and the Madison session was like just unreal. Like they, they wanted to do amazing. Madison. 
<laughs> yeah, and that was like a cup that we did like two, two or three takes, or maybe it was take five actually. It was two of the takes we stopped right at the start because the clouds came over. Oh, okay. So it was like they just, but they they are just that good. There's like no, just like one mic, or two, it was like two mics, like a stereo pair, going into the <laughs> tape machine, um, just like. Oh, it just blows my mind. I just, I was like, couldn't really believe I was there witnessing that, like that, but what it sounded like was so good. And actually what we captured is such an accurate feeling and how it looked and sounded, you know, it's, yeah. um, you know, at the end of it, they break into like, they're laughing because they can't believe they just did it. And it's like really <laughs> sweet. And I'm just, yeah, yeah. big fan. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, So a couple of Patreon questions to wrap sure. this up. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so Fong asked, what has been the greatest obstacle that you've had to overcome? The greatest obstacle I've had to overcome? That is a really deep and interesting question. I think my own self-doubt and imposter syndrome. Mm. And it's not something I've necessarily overcome. It's something I am overcoming. I don't think it's, I'm not sure it's possible because it keeps changing. The goalposts yeah. keep moving. But that was something that I really, and still do struggle with. And um I feel quite triumphant just finishing a job because I'm just like, wow, I actually made it through there without messing something up to the point where the project had to stop. You know, it's like, it's such a, but it is something I'm talking about with my therapist actually about uh, trying to realign that thought a little bit mm. with not going in with so many expectations that I think are going to go wrong. Right. It's like, I'm almost, I'm almost expecting things to go wrong. And then I, I'm almost self no, I'm not self-sabotaging, but I'm catastrophizing. Mm. Um, and I think I'm trying to realign my thoughts a little bit. So yeah, but imposter syndrome is very real and quite difficult. Um, when you're a director, you sort of don't, it feels quite flimsy, I think, because you're not holding a camera and you're not, you're sort of just, you're just a voice in the room, essentially. You're just a person with an idea and they're, mm -hmm. they're often made up and a little bit silly. So you're like, it, you know it feels kind of like well, why why have they picked me to do this like it's <laughs> it feels like anyone could do this and i'm sure someone would have a better chart you know better voice for it and it's all especially when it's lots of money involved you're kind of like this is absurd like why is someone paying this much money for me to to like make my silly little idea so it, it's quite hard to overcome that and um i think just by the more i do it the more i'm learning that well i've somehow managed to sustain myself in this so I can't be as bad as my brain is saying mm. I am, or I haven't messed up as much as my brain tells me I'm going to. Right. And therefore you, you I have the proof there. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. But it, that is, it is a constant I have to keep reminding myself. And, and um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's probably the biggest obstacle and still it continues to be the biggest obstacle I, I have to battle with. Mm. Um, Fong also asked, do you think that creativity is a part of human nature or is it something that must be nurtured? and learned that's interesting because not everyone is creative mm. and i've i've and maybe they or at least don't display it in a way that is applicable to the the creative fields that we've, we we are used to so i don't really know i think um i was certainly encouraged when i was very young to to be creative and not necessarily like because we had any creative people in the family but if i did something that was remotely creative when I was very young, I was praised for it and my family would get excited by it. And I think maybe I, again, quite enjoy, like I like enjoyed the, the result of doing something creative, the kind of like how that would make people 
like laugh or cheer or whatever it was they would they would react in a way it was like creating a reaction and i think um so i do believe there was some nurture in that but then equally so many of my creative friends have like adhd and like there's certain traits i think that just spark creativity from people mm. i'm not saying everyone who's creative has adhd but it just i was noticing there's just there's just similar traits of people that i connect with if i connect with someone for the first time and i don't know what they do and we really get on they usually drop a bombshell like by the way i'm a painter or i, I i'm also a songwriter and i'm like that figures because we've just connected like we've just had this really mm. big connection and i don't often get that with um with other people um I've, i don't know if you've ever done the personality test before yeah i can't uh, remember what code i am but it's like it's the interesting that i think yes one? exactly that i yeah. think i'm like i infp something or en I, I can't remember and if i get it wrong it will be it could be the wrong thing altogether but i need to retake it to remember what it is but it, but when i speak to friends and when i connect with people and we have really deep great conversations often i ask what they're like <laughs> you know personality code is or whatever right. and it's like you it's usually one that fits with mine in mm. some capacity um or is complementary to what mine is or close to it um okay. it's rare that i'd connect in a really deep and meaningful way and create a long friendship from someone who is very polar opposite on that chart mm. and i'm a very friendly person i can get on with everyone but it's the the sort of continued deepness of a friendship or how that blossoms right. is definitely from people that are more like-minded so i do believe there's also and that and i and to circle that back i think creativity is a part of that it's a part of it's a way you think about things mm. it's not just lateral it's it's like um i don't know again it's like you step outside the lines a little bit because that's where creativity exists yeah i don't think it i don't think it there's creativity doesn't always exist in formality i don't think and it people might say it does because you could learn grade eight piano and only stick to that and play like concerts mm. and stuff but that's because what they're probably playing is a piece of music that was written out of a heat of creativity like of right. abstract thinking and abstract playing and you know it wasn't put together by numbers and notes and bits on paper and stuff it was certainly played that way but it's it, often when things are written it's it's out of your sort of con you know subconscious and right yeah so i i again i don't have a solid answer for that one but i do think it's <laughs> probably a bit of both mm. um i'm I, i'm sure i'm sure there's someone who's probably studied it a lot harder than i have I'm just spe speculating, but it's it's an interesting. I think it's it's it it's an interesting debate, yeah. um, and I think everyone would have an interesting answer to that. And I'd love to to actually take that question and ask other people mm -hmm. because uh, I think everyone would have a really interesting answer of yeah. whether it's either or. I personally think that I think everybody has is creative. I think it's part of human nature. Mm -hmm. um, also, I'm INFJ. If if anybody cares <laughs> interesting yeah, yeah okay yeah, i wish yeah. i'd remember what mine is but um i've forgotten over the years and didn't ever wrote it down so it's, well redo but, um, the test and let me know <laughs> i will i will i'll message you because it's um yeah. I, me I remember it's interesting when i when i did it um for the first time probably like 2014 or something um when i read the blurb at the end it said don't get scared when you read this because it will feel like we've like spied on you or something <laughs> and I read and I read it and I was like, this is absurd. I can't believe how much this is like looking in a mirror, essentially. Mm. It was so accurate to the way I am. Mm -hmm. Um, which is and especially after answering just a couple of multiple choice questions. So it's like uh, right. 
or not even they're not multiple choice either, they're like kind of on a scale like a, right yeah you know <laughs> very likely or unlikely and it's just it's fascinating yeah. but yeah i do think though that like uh even though if if, if everybody is creative mm-hmm. um i think that it's not necessarily it's not necessarily nurtured though in some aspect and so Mm-hmm. Some people don't get to explore that side. They don't get to explore yeah. the creativity in them. And so they're led to believe that they aren't creative. You're probably right. You probably, it probably is a lot of a societal thing. Yeah. Because we are kind of, kind of told to be more formal as adults, to, to kind of be more regimented and strict. And, yeah. you know, I think um, one thing I'm a big firm believer of is kind of like not to lose the child in yourself, mm-hmm. to to be silly and fun and, to not be too serious because I think life, life is serious anyway, you know, there's taxes and whatever it's, it's just life is difficult. So I think to try and find the the lightness in it and to, to the non-seriousness of it is, is like way more interesting and, and, um, something I'm just, I just constantly adopted myself to not try and lose sight of that, that kind of, and I think you're probably right. I think if you, if that's not nurtured and it doesn't remain, then you probably would, be less inclined to your your creativity would become dormant essentially right um, yeah. because you're right you know when you go back to school and you're in like the first couple of years everyone's painting everyone's building lego mm-hmm. like it's and that's abstract creativity that's like just make whatever you want to make draw mm-hmm. everyone to draw no kid's ever going to go well i can't i need you to tell me what i'm drawing they're always yeah. going to just <laughs> put the paint and some will just excel in it in a certain way that becomes distinguished and other people will just won't but it's i think you're totally right i think creativity does exist in everyone um but it does it does it can disappear not completely but will be buried i guess by yeah uh the expectations of society yeah exactly yeah Yeah. um dj asked what drives you to live the life you have chosen and how much might that have changed over the years what drives me i think um Again, very deep, interesting question. You have yeah. <laughs> people ask very, very good questions. It's uh, they always think, do. <laughs> yeah, it's what drives me. I think um, I think I enjoy learning, and obviously, when we finished school, I was never really a uh, I was never really into um academic learning, but creative learning fascinates me. I think mm-hmm. um, learning from mistakes and finding a new way to do the same thing is just incredible to me how despite writing hundreds of songs i can still find a new way to to do that and get excited by it and same with films it's like i find a thousand different ways to point the camera at someone and still get excited by it and i think that drives me because it's like it's such a it's such a reward and it's such a it's not really a reward that needs critics to to praise it because it's a mm-hmm. reward that happens before they even see it. The reward comes from just being like, oh my God, we just, we just did this. Or it comes even earlier than that sometimes. It's sometimes I'm just, I listen to a song and a new idea blossoms in my head. I'm like, wow, and I would never have thought of doing that if I hadn't listened to that song and maybe looked at a certain photograph or piece of art or something and become inspired simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that drives me to, to continue to do it and to not get bored from doing it. Um, I think if I ever became complacent, I'd probably stop. Mm-hmm. doing the thing because i wouldn't i wouldn't um get anything from it um mm-hmm. it would become stale and old and and ultimately boring and i think i need to be excited by it i think i have I, it's self-diagnosed but i think i have a sort of 
a level of ADHD in me. So I need to be, I need to be stimulated by new things constantly. So mm-hmm. to kind of be in two lines of work where that's kind of the goal <laughs> is quite helpful. Um, so yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something else to be inspired by yourself and what you've previously made or mm. what you're making. I think that's, that's, it's such an amazing experience to, to feel that and to mm. be able to continue to make new things from that. Definitely. Yeah. I think it's interesting as well because I, I usually hate what I make for about six months. Really? Roughly. <laughs> I, it's not, it, it differs, but I usually finish a project and I can't love, even when I have other people involved, because I think you spend so long n- seeing what went wrong. No, no shoot's yeah. ever perfect. It's impossible for it to be perfect. So you end up looking at the video and remembering all the mistakes that happened and they become scars almost or like cuts. Mm-hmm. Maybe not scars, they become cuts. And then I think after six months or so or any amount of time, I guess, you forget about the things that went wrong on set and you start looking at the piece of work for what it is, just a piece of work, a piece yeah. of art and a visual piece of art. And, it, um, and then you start realizing, you sort of see it differently you know you it doesn't it's not it's not a postcard for everything that went wrong it's like a and it's just it's just a thing you've made and then you can see it slightly more objectively so it's quite Mm. it's annoying but it's nice that i can at least after a certain amount of time come back to my own work and sort of find things i like about it or or you know um yeah which is good but it's that whole thing i mean it happens with music right it's yeah you what you want to sound like everyone else except yourself yeah and other (laughs) other people hear your music and they're like what you sound great and you're like yeah but I don't sound like that person and they are great and um it's hard yeah. to see it in yourself sometimes but it also is good because maybe that keeps us more humble and to mm. to to not I think if we loved ourselves that much we probably would have uh I don't think that's a, like a healthy <laughs> maybe in, in an art form because it becomes you become arrogant and therefore yeah you believe everything you make is good and I think that's that's a dangerous thing for artists and a lot of the time when Metal Arc was more early on and we were getting a lot of messages from younger artists and they would say, why, why hasn't my song been playlisted on Spotify? Why haven't I been given these big gigs like you guys have? And there's obviously there's a myriad of reasons why. But often it's probably because they're not looking inwards enough to correct mm. a mistake or, uh, you know, or, or learning from failure. Rather, they're trying to, they, rather than seeing... And then failure is never nice. Rejection is never nice. But we have to look at that sometimes and say, if you've written a song and no one wants to, to, to play it, it's, it doesn't mean it's a bad song, but it means no one's connecting with it. Mm. And it, it means critically it's not a good song because if you're making music for other people and they're all saying they don't like it, then the song is technically a failure. You might love it. And therefore for you, it's not a failure, but that doesn't mean everyone else is going to love it. And I think recognizing well, why isn't it someone's not connected? Like people haven't connected to this song. If I'm making music for everyone else, why, why haven't they? And how can I learn from this thing and try again and make something else? And I think growing from that is where you can get to a place where, you know, people then suddenly are liking your music because you're, you're trying to, to find a new way for it to connect. But, but some people have that one thing they think is great mm-hmm. and no one else thinks it's as great as they do. And they just keep pushing it because they, they believe so so certainly that it is the thing that's going to be the be their song be their hit and it's tricky because with those people you that that needs to be a self-found thing because otherwise you're just adding more rejection to them Mm. um 
and too much of it means you get scared and you never write anything because you're like oh everything i make is rubbish and no one will like it yeah. but i think you have to have some confidence to be like i know i've got it in me it's just not this one mm. i'm just going to keep writing it i'm going to keep writing and writing until mm. one day someone i'm not having to ask anyone whether they like my song people are coming to me and saying i like your song and then you're like okay fantastic that means i've written something which is resonating and yeah that's um yeah so that was quite that was quite a ramble then sorry no it's good I, I wonder like how many people who write or release music write for themselves versus writing mm. for other people because i mean i i've always written for myself and it mm -hmm. just happened that some of my music connects with people yeah but i never really put it out with the intention of wanting people to like i never wrote a song to be like I hope I hope you like this. <laughs> like, yeah, I hope no, of course. you receive it well. It's like, exactly. all right, I like it, and then they happen to see it and also like it. Exactly, which is great. And I think the the more songs you release, the more you'll probably naturally just see people gravitating towards certain. Mm -hmm. You know, especially if you're experimenting with different styles or different songwriting styles as well. I think um, metal art specifically, we have we sort of dabble in so many not different genres but different sounds. Like, you know, we can have a song which is just Kate and a guitar. And then we can have a song that's like just tons of layered production. Yeah. And after a while, you start seeing a common thread of like what people are mostly gravitating towards. And it's sort of, it, it doesn't have to, but it can inform how you go forward sometimes. Because you're like, well, if that's what people are enjoying, maybe we should write more of that. Um, yeah. I think for a long time, we got really hung up in writing for other people. Um, mm. I think even our... Even our first album kind of got carried away on itself. I think the record label were, they'd spent more on us than they probably should have for a band on an indie label. And I think that meant they were very keen for us to gain some kind of commercial success. And then with that means that every song on your record kind of needs a chance at radio. So every yeah. song needs a beat, every song needs to be three and a half minutes. And the, without them saying it specifically, they sort, they sort of encourage it. And what that meant was the album became something which, not every song was produced for the song, if that makes sense. It felt yeah. like it was produced for an agenda. Yeah. And I think um, we both maybe don't love the album as much as we should because it represents us kind of fitting or, or following the wrong path, I think, which is mm. the path for other people and expectations and money. And, and not because we specifically wanted to, I think because we felt like that was the way we had, we had to do that in order to fulfill our to exceed the expectations that were set for us um mm. and then nightstorm became a weird model a mix of the two and so i think us writing together now there's so much clarity in why we're doing it there's no we're no we're not fools to it now we've had little moment of success not, no no uh, that's not even that a taste of success at the start when we were offered like really big tours even though we'd never released a song and having stupid dinners with labels and things <laughs> And then sort of going through the opposite way and, and almost having failure dumped on us later. You know, like mm. we, we, I was just saying to you about that person, how they need to learn from that mistake. Ours was all backwards. And so where we are now is where we've learned from the mistake. And the mistake is writing music for any other reason than for yourself, mm. because it's the songs are important to you because that's all a song should be. And then if someone else connects with it, it just means that that's a shared story mm. rather than a personal story. And, so, and, and I think that's just 
how songs should be and then success might come from that and that's really great because that means more people are sharing that sentiment with you but yeah. but i'm also thinking not thinking i'm also um aware that we were so we were looking at the bigger picture for so long the idea of having we need to have hundreds of thousands of instagram likes and millions and millions of streams some of which took place but but not not for the right reasons and i think what we forgot was some of the most important messages we ever received were from individuals who had connected with our songs on a very personal basis or had used our songs for their first dances at weddings and these moments that are pivotal in their life our music soundtrack that and that's actually kind of more important than a thousand people or hundreds of thousands of people sort of thumbs upping like hey yeah we, yeah. we like your songs cool we, we listen to it sometimes and it's great like i'd prefer a more condensed group of people that resonate in such a deep way with our music and and mm. the more we write now together the more we're wanting a, a deeper connection and the songs are written about a, a deeper connection and the deeper side of the human condition yeah. so if only 10 or 15 people really connect with that i hope that those people if they do you know that they want to connect with us and we can just create a shared community about the, the human condition and how crazy it is just how crazy life is yeah. I would prefer that than than just a hundred thousand people saying, "Yeah, it was really cool." <laughs> like that's, I don't, I just don't think that's beneficial for us at this stage now. I think it's it's about closing that down a bit and and um and mm. and sort of see you know seeing the people that are connecting to it and not not just a a mass of faceless people. Um, right. Yeah, but I guess like you can only say that now because because you've had that experience yes. earlier on, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I said that to kate the other day actually i was it, that it was um we almost couldn't you can't almost instill that to anyone at the start because yeah. everyone has to go through their journey it's why i kind of don't like when someone says like what what should i do to to get to this place and it's like just don't listen to anyone but yourself <laughs> because you're going to have to make all your own mistakes and learn from them and that's going to inform you later on because if you try and bypass the mistakes by someone telling you the route to go mm. you know if someone says 10 years into their career, these are all the mistakes I made, so don't make them. And you're spending the whole time sidestepping all these potential mistakes. You're just going to be going down this weird path that's not yours. And, mm. and, no, and no, no person's success, route to success can be repeated. Mm-hmm. That's why we always see, you know, for every Ed Sheeran, there's two years of so, like quirky solo artists getting signed <laughs> and technically commercially failing because it's people are trying to just pick that route again like right. but it can't be done it's like the the door closes the person the, the second that person makes it and then you have to try and find a new route a new way to do it um and the artist <laughs> it is it, it is but it's also kind of amazing because you're walking in a forest that has no path <laughs> which means the whole time it's like untrodden ground it's amazing it's like this uh it's it's nerve-wracking but it's exciting because it's almost like going to a, to an ancient forest i keep using forests maybe i don't know why it's in my brain and like and and you know that no one has ever trodden on this ground before literally no one you're the first person like being on the moon for the first time or something mm. like that's that if you can make your path like that where you feel like every time is a is you treading in a place that no one's treading before or you're looking for the parts of the forest that don't have a path or there's no footsteps you're like that area's got no footsteps that's where i should step and then you step on it and it's like okay like maybe it doesn't work maybe people don't react to that but if they do it means everyone's gonna be like oh my god like 
we never thought of that and then everyone's going to try and copy you and follow you and you create because you've done something that was not done before Mm. Um, which is easier said than done in in an era where everything has been done a thousand times yeah but uh but every every now and then these artists come through then we're just like we're just we're enamored with their success story because we're like how did they do it and it's because they they just went their own way and a very different route to everyone else um i just put out a song called lost in the woods a month yeah. ago. yeah <laughs> yeah right exactly pretty much about all that <laughs> uh-huh also forest is i don't know in my twitch community i i was doing some live composing for some time um mm-hmm. and and whenever i asked people for title suggestions or whatever they would or like the feel of the the short little piece everybody would say forest so <laughs> interesting so you feel like you emit that kind of that sense maybe that sensibility maybe through yourself and through your songwriting i guess so yeah yeah, but yeah. which is interesting because i feel like metal art for example we ours is always very water <laughs> like i don't know why we and and that's our own self like that's us analyzing ourselves, but we seem to be we gravitate towards water when we're writing and imagery of water and it feels watery. And I can't tell you why. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, and see, the, you know, whether it's a sea or a river or a lake, it kind of changes, but it's always very water, water-based. But I, I get the sense from you. I mean, those, huh. those, woods, those wood metaphors and those forest metaphors would have come probably from, there's obviously something you're emitting, which makes you feel of wood, wood have. forestry. Yeah, wood, <laughs> wood have. Exactly. <laughs> have to get a pun in there. <laughs> always at least one yeah but yeah i think that's a good place to wrap up thank mm. you so much for being on the podcast and no my pleasure thank you for for, for just being an amazing host and asking amazing questions and <laughs> it feels like a really I've, yeah i just feel like i've had a wonderful conversation with you so yeah it's great knowing getting to know you better um mm. so where can people find you on the internet uh i mean the probably the easiest place i have a, a website uh, which is www.danielbroadleyfilms.com. I'm also fairly proactive on my Instagram, which is at Daniel Broadley. Um, and yeah, if people have specific questions, I either DM me or um, email me. I'm like, I'm fairly open to conversations and, um, and sharing what I know. I always feel like, um, yeah, I'm just, there's no, there's no point keeping secrets, basically. If people want to know something and I can help in some way, then I'm always up for that. So Amazing. <laughs> cool thank you cool. no worries my pleasure